The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode is with oh, just a, a great leader and a friend and someone who has just, I seek out his comments about really just about anything political uh, as we sort of are in this really, really busy time. Uh, as you well know, Brad Todd is the co-founder of On Message here in town. He's also the co-author of The Great Revolt. And we're going to get into that in a little bit more, but Thank you. Thank you so much, Brad, for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Fan of the show. Well, thank you. And so much of what you do is, well, we're going to get into all of that because you yourself confessed to me a long time ago that you uh, have a background in journalism on top of all the other cool things that you do. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in this business. You know, I am a recovered journalist, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know that many journalists would claim me at this point anymore, uh, <laughs> but I, I got my first job uh, writing for money when I was 14. Uh, I was the last guy cut off my high school basketball team, and uh, the next day I got offered uh, a job as a stringer for the local newspaper, and, awesome. uh, you know, the uh, I think the athletic director and the publisher of the paper were next-door neighbors or something like that, so... You know, I, I consoled myself that maybe this was a conspiracy and that I and, uh, probably was not. My basketball prowess was not good enough. But anyway, that led to a, a great college job. I worked for uh, the Commercial Appeal in Memphis in college, uh, which is a Scripps Howard paper. And uh, this was back in the day when newspapers, you know, had this battleship worth of talent. And, uh, you know, I got to go rub shoulders with these very seasoned sports writers and editors and copywriter, copy editors and designers and uh, you know, it worked for a college kid because all the work in sports happened between four and midnight. Well, that worked out perfect for me because you could still go out to the bars at midnight, you know, when I got <laughs> off work and I wasn't missing anything. Right. So uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And I, I decided to go to journalism school after that and did some political reporting. Uh, and so, you know, eventually moved across the, the uh, fence to the newsmaker side as opposed to the news gatherer side. But uh, I'm still very much a frustrated writer. <laughs> Well, but you also do quite a bit of, of punditry, and I, I mentioned that earlier. I know you have a uh, have had a really good friendship and relationship with Chuck Todd, who is not at all related, but a good friend, uh, right. Because, and I suspect because you both have a good um, encyclopedia of your own and background your, of your own about politics and how it all, the contours of everything and how it works. Tell me a little bit about, about that for you. Yeah, well, we are similarly nerdy, you know, and when I was a brand-new political consultant, uh, in the 2000 cycle, he was a pretty new news reporter and we got to know each other and hit it off well. And, uh, you know, he started doing a show called The Daily Rundown uh, on MSNBC in the mornings. And I was an early frequent um, contributor there and then eventually moved over to Meet the Press. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of Meet the Press shows in all their formats over the years. And, uh, you know, I I, 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 uh, I I find him to be somebody who does have a real good granular grasp. Uh, mm -hmm. of American politics at the state and district level, which is kind of rare. 
you know, I think a lot of people who cover politics, they know Washington and that's it. They don't know what, what they don't really understand sort of where the, where these elected officials come from or how they got there. And so I'm always drawn to reporters who have spent a fair amount of time in the field and covered actual campaigns and kind of have taken some time to understand the political terrain uh, in different states. Well, absolutely agree. And, and certainly the hotline where he originated and a lot of those other sort of really bright journalists folks that you're talking about specifically that know the districts, they know the regions, they know the cities, they really understand sort of the contours of politics. And I think it helps inform that Washington uh, narrative quite a bit more because it helps you understand sort of where they've come from and how they do their work, uh, you know, from, from the start. You know, I tell young people, I, I, I sort of made a promise to myself when I was in my twenties that and trying to beg people to see me about jobs that I would always be an open door for people who wanted to, who are looking for a job. And even if I don't have a job, I try to do an informational interview, even if it's 20 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, and at the end of every one of those meetings, uh, which happened here in the Washington area, I always tell them you're in the wrong place. Uh, you, you, you need to not be looking for a job in Washington. You need to go out and find a campaign or a regional news outlet or whatever and cut your teeth and put some stripes on your shirt uh, out in the real world and then come back here uh, once you have sort of mastered an area uh, and, and, and sort of proven your craft in a, at, at a, in a, in a regional level uh, and then come back here rather than just try to work your way up from the bowels uh, of some big Washington institution or agency. I just think your experience and judgment so much better when you when you've uh, practiced it sort of in the in the line of fire. I totally agree with that. I, I love it. And I, I always look back to the days. Uh, you know this because I've told you this before, but I spent a, a great deal of my first seven, eight years in New Jersey politics, getting a real sense of how that all works. And I think that that does help inform a lot of how the messaging is put together for clients and for other things, because, you know, ultimately, as much as we're communicating to Capitol Hill, we're also trying to communicate to folks back home about issues so that they will get motivated, get out there and vote for whatever issue or whatever candidate it is that we're advocating for. You know, I, I tell uh, corporate clients all the time uh, that politicians are funny. They do what's popular. Uh, you know, it's imagine that people who have to get elected with 51 percent, they tend to do what's popular. And so if you want to influence elected officials, be, figure out how to make your idea popular uh, and the elected officials will come along with it. And so I think having that understanding of how do you make something popular in a, in a jurisdiction or in a state uh, this far from here is it's absolutely critical to understanding how it's going to play in Washington once it once it arrives and what will it take to get critical mass uh, for this idea uh, and I I think that you you it's very hard to learn that from here uh, mm -hmm. but I think you can bring those skills to here that's tremendous tremendous advice too tell me a little bit more about on message and the work that you guys do uh, for for your clients and for for the work here in town sure well we started in two thousand five. Uh, we are a multi-platform agency, you know, in that we have polling and media and digital uh, and crisis communications, all that in, in, in the same shop. We've spun our corporate practice out a couple of years ago. Uh, it's now called On Message Public Strategies. Uh, we also do digital fundraising. That's a separate company as well, On Message Digital Fundraising. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit unusual in politics to have all these things uh, in one family of companies. It's not unusual in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at agencies in New York who service the retail sector, it's not unusual for them to have an insights division and a creative division, right? So sure. I wish I could tell you that we were that smart when we started it. But in the reality, <laughs> uh, Wes Anderson, Kurt Anderson, and I just liked each other. Uh, yeah. We just like working together. And 
you know, Kurt was a general strategist. I was an ad maker and Wes was a pollster. And so we said, well, let's work together anyway, you know, even though we don't all do the same things. Um, so the world has kind of come around to us rather than us coming around to the world. So <laughs> it was worked out great, you know, and I think we, we think we do our best work when we are doing more than one thing for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason is, is because we know we're going to be married in the morning. Yeah. You know, if I'm working with pollster in a different agency, even when I have a long relationship, yeah, you, know, you have to calibrate. Is this really worth fighting over? Absolutely. You know? uh, Absolutely. But, but when I'm pulling with people in our own shop, everything's worth fighting over because we can't get away from each other tomorrow. You know, it's not a, there's no, be no breakup. And right. so I, I think the client gets the benefit of a lot of internal dissent and then they get, you know, sort of a, you know, more unified fire tested uh, uh, recommendation from us. Sure. Uh, so that makes it, it's worked makes a ton of sense. And tell me a little bit, I've asked you this before, I think, uh, and I've had a couple of other pollsters on uh, before and asked the same question, because so much of what you do uh, in the polling space is becoming even more difficult to harness sentiment and to get uh, a sense of how people uh, feel about a candidate or feel about an issue. Talk to me a little bit about how that is evolving now and how you're looking to the future to keep it as a, as a successful venture. Well, you know, technology is really the driver of this, and I think it'll be the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and technology is the driver because we all now carry a telephone around in our pocket, and we don't sit around at home and answer something that rings on the wall. You know, a, a phone call on the wall you know, used to mean something really important, and you had to answer it, you know, or else they'd just keep ringing. Mm-hmm. And and you needed, you felt an obligation to talk to that person and answer their questions. Well, that made polling a lot easier. And so, what we've seen is, you know, reaching people on cell phone is harder. Their tolerance for a long conversation is much lower. So mm-hmm. we have to ask a lot fewer questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, our incident, what we call our incidence rate, you know, how many people are willing to get on the phone with us and complete the survey? It's just gone through the floor. So mm-hmm. we're, whereas we, we used to, you might get seven, eight, 10 percent incidence rate. You know, if you get two to five now, you're doing great. Wow. Uh, and, and uh, you know, our, our forefathers in this business would have gotten 30 or 40, mm-hmm. you know, so uh it, it really, we have to make a lot more phone calls to complete our interviews now. Um, I do think technology is going to be the answer to this as we end up with more text-to-web surveys. Uh, you know, mixed-mode surveys are beginning to be uh, utilized in a lot of settings. And, you know, sometimes we look, we can go to a panel that's purely an online survey. Like, for instance, if you're not trying to predict an election, if you just want to know what a defined group of people think, we can probably approximate that defined group of people off Uh, an email panel or an an online panel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's an interesting tool, especially on the corporate side for people to use. And we can achieve their objectives on research for uh, a lot, a lot less than we could uh, if we were trying to do an interruptive call. Uh, But if you're trying to predict an election, you you, right now, you still need to have live phone callers with real human beings talking to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not for all of it, maybe, but for a significant portion uh, of it. Uh, and it's, it, there's no question it's becoming a lot more challenging. Yeah. But you know, to email for a long time was where you'd send all your junk mail and email has turned back around to a place where you check first for real communication right. and real action. So I love that you say the technology is also going to be the answer to this because that feels right. I've heard you say this before. I've heard you talk about this before, but I'm curious to your point of view. So much is made of a national poll in the news. The news really digests that and gobbles it up like it's, you know, the best thing they've ever tasted. But the truth of it is, is that that's not necessarily how we predict elections. It's all local. 
Tell me a little bit about your point of view on that. There's not a single thing the United States of America does where it chooses nationally in a national election. And yet, but it's the most economical way to measure public sentiment as to, you know, to do a 1200 sample or a 1400 sample national survey, as opposed to going to 10 swing states and surveying 800 people in those 10 swing states. It's just a function of economics. Uh, And, you know, media pollsters for news outlets, they typically are surveying all adults first. Mm. And then they have a registered voter sample frame inside that. And then inside that, they have a likely voter sample frame. And they've reweighted it three times by the time they get to it. And so what they tell you is going to happen in the election is almost always garbage. Uh, and it can't not be garbage because they didn't start out trying to solve that problem. And polling is hard enough if you're trying to poll the people you need your answer from. When you start out with a lot of other people that are not capable of giving you the answer and don't really represent people inside your answer pool, it gets even harder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a few media pollsters that do a better job at it than others. But um, and I don't think they're without utility. Like, for instance, a national Republican primary electorate sample, it has utility to tell you what Republican sentiment is. Sure. Uh, I don't think it can predict who's going to win New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it can tell you a lot about what, sort of what what members of Congress who worry about their primaries, for instance, they, it tells you what they might think. Sure. Um, but even then, it's tricky. You know, I mean, if you look at states like Kentucky, two states right next to each other, Kentucky and Tennessee, Kentucky's primary registered voters only by party, and it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Tennessee's primary is open to everyone and plenty of Democrats vote in it because that's where the action is. Sure. So when you construct a national polling frame, we look for Republican primary voters. There are a lot of people in Kentucky where if they live 50 miles south in Tennessee, they qualify for that sample and they don't qualify in Kentucky. Interesting. So it's a and, and, and those things somewhat even out over the course of the a whole country, but not perfectly. Sure. Um, and so what. As a result, we all end up swallowing a lot of garbage polling, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, no doubt, and it's it's and it's and it, and one of the reasons is you don't have much other good stuff to to look at. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's 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 part of the problem in the discourse. Well, I'm I'm grateful for that because, and I ask you really sort of selfishly because I do frequently get asked to respond to these national polls, and I typically try to say that while it's good for for data. It's not necessarily good for outcome or predictions. And that's, that's sort of right. the way I've distilled it uh, for folks when I talk about that. Um, there is a lot coming up. And I'm not going to ask you to predict a horse race because goodness knows it's 12 months from now or more. Um, but I am curious. I have been hearing more and more people say that there is an expectation that this next cycle will be particularly nasty because there's not very much. Uh, success to ride on for either one of the at least today's front runners. Are you getting a sense? Are you getting any feel for that, or is it too early to really know? You know, here's a here's the thing I I, I think is possibly going to happen. I think this is the cause of what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just went through the six or seven years of the highest political engagement in American history, uh, at least at least dating back 125, 30 years oh, before more where people were a lot of people who were casually interested in politics suddenly got really interested in politics. And you remember in 2015, those first presidential debates were drawn 20, 25 million people. Uh, you know, like that's not only it takes, it takes a Taylor Swift NFL game to get that kind of number, you know? And so uh, it's, we, we, you, you had people with strong opinions about candidates who have not even voted in a lot of elections. And so 
I think that that period of long and intense engagement that has resulted in basically stasis, right? You had 2016, 2018, 2020, and 22 were mostly status quo elections, hard-fought status quo elections. I believe that a lot of those casual political engagers are now burnt out. They've still got the same basic actors in, in the play. You got Joe Biden, you have Donald Trump. Washington seems to be about the same. You know, Pelosi's still there. McConnell's still there. Neither party's clearly won. Uh, I think that they're bored uh, with the plot line now. And I think that they're going to stop paying attention. And they'll go back to, which is the norm, right? They're going to go back to doing what they did for most of their adult lives. Mm -hmm. And trying to motivate them, it's going to be impossible to inspire them, right? Because they get inspired by things that are new and different. Well, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are not new and different. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, and, and, And so... Therefore, the only thing you can do is like beat the crap out of the other guy and hope that they're motivated to show up to vote against them. Mm-hmm. And so I do think you're in for a, a pretty negative campaign year. Uh, and I also think that you will, a lot of things are going to not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of tactics that, that campaigns roll out up and down the ballot are just going to not work. Uh, and it won't catch traction. And and this goes for the media too. You know, I mean, a lot of our media folks now have, you know, the clicks are the thing. They get they get noticed by and promoted and, and compensated by how much traction their stories get. It's going to get harder and harder to do that too. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I've talked on so many other episodes about how difficult it had been when when Trump was president to pitch anything that didn't have to do with him. You know, I would be talking about something in particular client related and I have to figure out a way to thread the needle to tie the president back (laughs) to it because it was such a boon for for media business. And that really sort of brought in a lot of advertising dollars. It brought in a lot of attention to the various publications and that's changing, too. So that's that's interesting. Do you um, do you expect that? It will be a, a busier year in terms of in terms of money spent because of that, you're saying that there's going to be a lot of tactics that will be, um, that will be tried and, and will fail. So you're expecting perhaps even a, a record breaking money spend. Well, you know, closely divided chambers produce record spending because the stakes are really high for people who want either side to win. And it's plausible that a little bit more money could make a, meaningful difference and you know when one or when you have a five seat majority in the house and a one seat majority in the senate uh both sides can get can argue they can get there without with with adequate funding and the stakes are you know the two parties are very different right now there's not a lot of overlap right uh and so as a result those stakes for everybody are pretty high and so i think that you will see a lot more money i think you'll see a lot more money uh, uh spent and i think because things won't work uh, you know, people will have to stick with it longer. You know, mm. it's, uh, I think we're in the world of advertising now in politics where, you know, the old world of, we used to run what we call a thousand gross rating points where people would need to see it between eight and 12 times. I think that's way too little now uh, with a more disengaged electorate and with people with, with uh, you know, con- media consumption, very fragmented. I think it takes a lot. And you, know, you see this on the media side too, like a lot of, uh, media outlets now will pro- continue to promote news stories that are two and three weeks old yes. uh, through their online channels. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I, I think that their understanding as well, that this is not quite as much of a time track, uh, ex- you know, job that we have anymore. Sure. 
No, that makes total sense. And it surprises me sometimes when I do see those stories that are coming up that are two and three weeks old. Whereas you and I remember times where it was like you'd wake up the next morning and if somebody asked you if you'd read the story that was in the New York Times and you hadn't, it was like a gotcha moment. Like you've not done your homework and you have to go back and read the rest of the clips for the day. And today I no longer apologize. I haven't read it, you know, so I'm going to go back and read it now. Where are you spending, where are you advising um, your folks to spend their time and their, their resources? Is it, is it online in particular? Are the airwaves a good recommendation? I know everybody is different, so it's certainly not cookie cutter, but are there any surprises, anything new that you're finding that's actually working? Owned media, you know, we divide the world up uh, into four categories, right? There's earned media in the the traditional press that you work for and, you know, try to work your way into. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's owned media. That's stuff that you control and you put on your own platforms. Uh, And then then shared media and paid media. Paid's the advertising side. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're spending a lot. You can't really decide what people are going to share, right? You can't make something. I can't tell you how many times candidates have said, I want you to make me a viral video. And it's like, well, okay, well, I would like (laughs) you to make me a magic trick, too. That's right. <laughs> it's a um, so it's it's very it's very hard to decide what is going to be viral. Only only the market decides that, and, right. and sometimes the market pick does, does unpredictable things in that regard. Uh, but owned media, I think, is going to be pretty important. Um, it's um, yeah, I, I think campaigns that should program their own channels, they should view their uh, social media followings and their and and their YouTube account as a panel to be programmed and then they in their email uh as well uh you know we had a campaign in a state where there was not a ton of press working political press and we created a newscast uh and we had a reporter who would follow our candidate around and do packages like just like a tv package cool. uh, on what that candidate did that day mm-hmm. and uh you know it was a four-minute package right nothing nothing big uh but you'd promote it in email you'd promote it on social you'd promote it on youtube and, and P, it, it presents information in a way people are used to consuming it, and they know it's from a partisan source, but they've decided everything's a partisan source. Yes. And so it, it, you know, is the campaign is not any less credible than the local TV station. And I, I, my, my reporter friends blanch when I tell them that, but like the consumer has decided that they'll be the judge of the information. They know that the source is, is, is probably has an ax to grind. Uh, whether it's true or not, and they, they, the consumer believes that. And so they want to judge the information for themselves, and they'll balance it with other information that they think comes from the opposite side. And I think you have to respect the news consumer enough to know that they're going to do that. They're going to balance your content with other people's content. Uh, and, and then you just have to present your information in as, as most persuasive and meaningful way that you can. Yeah. No, that's great advice. And I think that makes a ton of sense. And you see it, you see a lot more people, podcasts, uh, online, YouTube's a variety of different things. And people are picking and choosing, they're curating their news uh, that they want to read and consume anyway. So certainly offering that makes makes great sense. You, uh, you are the co author of a book titled The Great Revolt. Will you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I wrote The Great Revolt with Selena Zito. And we um, uh, after the, the 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 2016 election, you know, and during the primaries in 2016, I did not think Donald Trump would be nominated. I said on national TV, this was a summer flame. It was a tantrum of the voters. It was, you know, uh, you, you come up with the metaphor. I used it, you know, because <laughs> I didn't think in the end, I thought they voters were just trying to send a signal in the end. They wouldn't do it. So after uh Trump wins the nomination. I conclude, okay, I can't, I'm not supposed to miss these things in my job. I need to not miss it again. Mm -hmm. And so 
in the general election, I did sat through a lot of focus groups, uh, parsed through a ton of data. Uh, and so uh, by the time the election came around, uh, I was a lot less surprised than everybody else was, uh, you know. And so uh, it, I think, and, and Selena, my co-author, had decided she did a tour of the Lincoln Highway from one end to the other. And she called me about halfway through. Uh, I think she was in Illinois at the time. And she said, Trump's going to win. And I was like, oh, you're crazy. That's not what, you know, absentee ballots, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, nope, he's going to win. He's going to get people that nobody thinks are out there and he's going to win. And so um, she's like, I just talked to enough people in beauty shops and barbershops and country stores. This is there. So she was pretty far out on the limb. And, you know, um, a lot of people in her profession just thought she was crazy and, uh, and turned out she was right. And so she, CNN ends up hiring her as a result of that. And um, so we came together to pitch a book, uh, which was, uh, you know, we were lucky. We got a, a, a publisher who was very interested in it. And uh, we profiled diff- seven archetypes of Trump voters. And uh, some of these were groups that you knew that were there, right? We called uh, King Cyrus Evangelicals. Uh, and that's a group people would have predicted, have wanted an explanation for. But another group like, you know, what we called Rotary Reliables, sort of your Main Street Republican uh, activist who, uh, you know, maybe you thought Marco Rubio should have been the pick or one of the other guys who was more conventional, but they came, initially came around to Trump and why. Um, we did Silent Suburban Moms, right? People whose all their friend group was against Trump. They were for him. They didn't say it much. That's why we called them silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, but it, Trump won just enough of them to win the presidency. So. Mm-hmm. We also, as in the process of doing this, uh, and we we went deep in ten counties that had switched from Obama to Trump uh, in the Midwest, in five states that had uh, made the difference electorally. But in doing this, we concluded that the populist revolution was something bigger than him, and that it started before him, and that it was going to last, and it was going to realign politics. And you know, after twenty sixteen, a lot of people were like, "Oh, it's a black swan election. This is a fluke. He's a fluke. This doesn't ever happen again." And our contention in the book was, no, it's bigger than that. And it's yeah. going to change. It's going to reshape things, which I think our conclusion has held up. Uh, and uh, we debated whether he was a category builder or a category killer in marketing terms. Uh, and so anyway, the book had some nice legs to it. And uh, we got to uh, go present our findings a lot of different places. And, you know, writing a book is a uh, different from writing anything else yeah. uh, because, you know, you you put months and months of work into it and then it's months before it even comes out in print. And so, you know, there's some fear that your conclusions won't hold up even until the book comes out. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, And so it was, but it was, it was a, it was a great process. And uh, you know, I think it has uh, served uh, as a thinking exercise as a, a pretty good framework going forward. No question about it. And certainly proves your point about getting out into the world and and meeting people that are not inside of Washington, D.C., because if you were in this vacuum inside of D.C., it was a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton was going to be the was going to be elected handily. Um, And I don't know what it was or why it was, but I was invited on uh, Sirius XM right before the election with someone that was a Hillary Clinton person. And I had just finished reading the now Senator J.D. Vance's book about um, Appalachia and the people there. And yeah, yeah, and it was, I felt like it really illuminated some of the things, which I'm going back now to read your book. I've read some of the excerpts, but I haven't read it cover to cover because I think that it sort of was what informed my 
I warned that we shouldn't be in the conversation with the folks that I worked with um, on that show, that we shouldn't be so quick to decide who it was going to be. Cause I suspected that there were some um, sentiments out in the world, the, you know, the government across the way, the, excuse me, the country across the country um, that were unhappy. And sure enough, uh, I got called from by uh, Sirius XM like just days later, and they were like, you're a witch. How did you know this? <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I thought, you know, but it goes back to your original point is that I had worked for some time in the States, and you can't sit in Washington and read the polls and expect what's going to happen just based on what we know here, that knowing folks back home were supporting Donald Trump surprised me but also told me that something was afoot. So that's so interesting. And Selena Zito is among one of my favorite journalists and just a superstar. It's so interesting to know you guys um, worked so closely together on that. That's awesome. So we're getting to the end of our conversation, and I'm going to have to ask you about Coach to Cure MD because I know that you've started a nonprofit, and I want to know a little more about that. Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, So my nephew was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, in 2005. And, you know, what happens when you get a relative diagnosed with something that you can barely pronounce is you go Google it and then you get scared to death. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it's a lethal genetic disorder. Life, life expectancy at that time was only to about 20. Mm-hmm. Um, it is pushed out now to near 30. Uh, it's a muscle disorder. It primarily affects boys. It's on the X chromosome and their bodies can't make muscle glue that glues those muscle fibers back together after the, after wear and tear and growth. And so eventually their blood deposits calcium in those muscle fibers and calcium is like concrete. So they, they become mobilized. Now I've, I've just given you the layman's explanation and please, I hope you're any the medical folks that are listening. Um, don't jump through the phone here. Oh, and, no, of course, correct us. of course. But that's, that's the quick explanation. So, sure. you know, the first year I wrote the biggest check I could to research. Mm-hmm. And the next year I wrote a check and I was like, I can't write any more checks. Like I've, I've never wrote a check big enough. We have to do something else. Absolutely. And so, I knew some folks uh, in the college coaching profession and some really good folks and they introduced me to more folks. And we just kept knocking on doors and asking people uh, until we had dreamed up this charity uh, that um, for college football coaches on one weekend a year, uh, which happened fourth weekend of September this year. Uh, They all wear our logo on their sleeves at the same time. And that compels the broadcaster since everybody's wearing it on the same day to then talk about it. And what is it? And so it's an awareness play. So it leads people to go online and look up what, what it means. And a lot of coaches have young men who are battling Duchenne on the field as their honorary captains. Oh, wow. uh, I went to the University of Tennessee's game against South Carolina, and they had this young man named Seth Kate down on the field, and he's in his wheelchair leading 102,000 people in a, in a, in a VOLS cheer. Awesome. Uh, you know, and, you know, it's a moment of his life for him. But in that moment, 102,000 people suddenly know more about Duchenne muscular dystrophy than they ever had before. Absolutely. And, and so hopefully some of them will give some money. Hopefully some of them will go on and like maybe figure this thing out, you know, and uh, become a biologist and figure it out. So um, that's uh, that's the connection. We've been going for 16 years with America's College Football Coaches. Uh, not every one of them do it, but almost all of them do it. And it goes all the way down to Division Three. Uh, and it happens the same weekend. And so, uh, you know, it's a labor of love. And, uh, I, you know, I think we're making a difference. Uh, the FDA this year approved a therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy for the first time. Uh, there are four and five-year-old boys out there getting this drug this fall. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to be the entire cure, but maybe a big piece of it for those boys who are four and five years old. So we are making progress as a community at it. And so, 
um, you know, if you see a green patch or two on a coach's sleeve, then go follow us at Coach Secure MD on social media and, you know, kick in 25, 50 bucks. That's amazing. We're, well, I'm going to make sure it's in the show notes, Brad, to make sure that folks are more aware of it. Sure. Super duper awesome. Have a family friend who had a son who was also diagnosed and understand enough about it to know how hard it is on family, but also that we have to find a cure. Um, so congratulations to you for that great effort. And certainly, like I said, we'll promote it here on our show. Um, we are to the end of our 30 minutes and I could talk, I have a thousand more questions for you. So maybe we have to talk again, but, uh, before I let you go, is there someone you can recommend for a future show? Well, have you had Selena on before? Selena would be a great person. Uh, you know, she writes a a weekly call for the Pittsburgh post Gazette and uh, the Washington examiner. And, you know, I, I, I always call her the poet laureate of real America because, you know, she travels, she drives everywhere by car, unique reporter. She doesn't fly in very rare circumstances uh, and takes, she refuses to take the interstates because she says you can't see any of the real country there. And so I think her approach to reporting is real throwback and she'd have a lot of insights. I love that. Well, I'm going to tell her that you sent me her way and I appreciate that so much. Brad Todd, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for having me, Lisa. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon.